So the giving of the Torah, or Matan Torah, which is the event that we celebrate on Shavuot, is without doubt the most important event in Jewish history. And really, we believe the most important event in history. This event, called Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, is sometimes referred to as Kabbalat HaTorah, receiving the Torah, or it's also sometimes referred to as Ma'amad Har Sinai, the event at Sinai. It's all the same thing. This event is described twice in the Torah in great detail. First in Parshat Yitro, in the book of Exodus, where it chronologically is telling the story of the Exodus and it tells us how they received the Torah. And then later in the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, in Vatchanan, Moses recounts how they received the Torah. Um, it is also later mentioned in the Torah multiple times um, when Moses refers back to it, including at the end of his life, he refers back to it. Um, it's mentioned many times in, throughout scripture. Um, Devorah in her famous song refers to the giving of the Torah and speaks a little bit about it. And we also have a psalm dedicated to the story of the giving of the Torah, Psalm 68 in the book of Psalms. So when we speak of the giving of the Torah, the receiving of the Torah, it really, it's an event that we're referring to that really has three major parts to it. And we'll try to cover all three parts. Firstly, there is the Brit, the covenant, or the deal would be a more simple English word to use. The deal that Israel made with God. It was this covenant that Israel made with God. We will become God's chosen people. He will give us his promised land. And we commit to following his commandments. The second thing is God's revelation to Israel. God revealed himself to Israel, to all of Israel. All the people saw it when God's, and the people heard God saying the Ten Commandments. Then the third part is most God teaching Moses all of the 613 commandments, the entire Torah, and Moses then teaching it to Israel. So those are the three parts, three important parts, the covenant we made with God, the revelation, where God revealed himself to us, and the information, the, the Torah, the teachings that God taught us. So the giving of the Torah begins God's covenant with us, essentially establishes us as a people, as God's people, becoming God's unique people. And that is really um, what started our commitment to follow God's commandments and being God's people. So the giving of the Torah is then the foundational event of all of Judaism. Judaism started at the giving of the Torah. There, there were events beforehand, the exodus from Egypt, but those were all a prelude to the covenant that we made with God and the, in, the revelation, the information God taught us at the giving of the Torah. So it stands as the foundational event of Judaism. And so the Torah commands us, later in Deuteronomy, Moses commands us, to always remember the day that we stood at Sinai, to never ever forget it, to pass it on from one generation to the next, to teach all future generations this event at Sinai so that we never forget it. Without knowledge of this event of Sinai, there is no Judaism. It is the foundation of all of Judaism. So we have to make sure that this story gets passed on Everybody knows it. Nobody forgets it um, because this is the key to our future. Oh, this is the key to Judaism, the basis of all of Judaism. So let's begin the story from where we first heard about God's plan to bring the people to Sinai and give them the Torah. It's the first time in the Torah itself we discovered reference to God's plan was when God first met Moses at the burning bush before the exodus from Egypt, when God sent Moses to take the people out of Egypt, which happened, by the way, the burning bush was at Mount Sinai, or Horeb, which is another name in the Torah used interchangeably with Sinai. So at the burning bush, God told Moses to go to Egypt, and he told him, when you take them out of Egypt, um, you will bring the people back to this mountain where you will serve me over here, and I will, God will reveal himself to the people. So God already told Moses about 
this event when he first appointed him to lead the people out of Egypt. Indeed, in Egypt, Moses repeatedly told Pharaoh that God wants him to let his people go, so that they may serve me. God wants us to serve him. Clearly, Moses was referring to the event at Sinai, when we build, make a covenant with God and become God's servants or become committed to following God's instructions. So before the actual giving of the Torah, before they even left Egypt, God already begins to give instructions. And before there's even a real covenant with, with the people, God already begins to give us some instructions. Back in Egypt, God already gives Moses instructions all in preparation for this covenant we were going to make. God gives Moses instructions, um, including the instructions regarding how to create the Jewish calendar, the rules of Passover that they were to observe for all future generations, um, celebrating seven days, the first day being a Yom Tov, a day of no work, the last day being a day of no work, not eating chametz, eating matzah, bringing a Passover offering, as well as he tells them about the mitzvah of redeeming the firstborn, <clears throat> um, animals and your sons we redeem, as well as the, the mitzvah of putting on tefillin, the tefillin that Jewish men wear. All those are mentioned while the people are still in Egypt. Before they even left Egypt, God already gives Moses these commandments. Later, they cross the sea, and now they're told, um, God gives Moses more commandments. Um, and later, when they receive the manna, the manna starts falling from heaven. God tells them to rest on the seventh day, giving them the mitzvah of Shabbat, Shabbos. The Midrash tells us that when the people left Egypt, they knew, they were told by Moses that they're leaving Egypt with the goal of going to Mount Sinai, where they're going to make a covenant with God. And so the Midrash tells us that they eagerly counted the days from when they left, left Egypt until they would receive the Torah. Um, Kabbalah tells us that during that time, they also worked on themselves, developing themselves, um, raising themselves up from the low spiritual level they were in while slaves in Egypt. And to commemorate that every single year, we count the Omer from Passover to Shavuot. We count the 49 days to commemorate the days that our ancestors counted as they were when they left Egypt on their way to um, Sinai to receive the Torah. The Midrash tells us something fascinating based on a verse in um, based on a verse later in the Torah, the very end of the Torah, and in the Song of Devorah, that it says God was going to other places. So the Midrash explains that before God gave us the Torah, God first offered it to other nations, but they refused it. The Midrash describes God going to Edo. Edom are descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, also descendants of Abraham. And God asked them if they want the Torah. They said, what's in it? God chose number six of the Ten Commandments, says, do not murder. They said, our ancestor Esau was a murderer, and we do that. That's part of what we do, so we cannot take it. And then he turned to the descendants of Ammon and Moab. Ammon and Moab were nations that were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew, still from the Abrahamic family, <clears throat> and offered them the Torah. They asked what's in it. God said, do not commit adultery. They said, oh, we have a history of um, adultery, and um, our ancestors committed adultery, and so we cannot accept it. Then God goes to the Yishmaelites, the descendants of Yishmael, Abraham's other son, and offers them the Torah. They ask, what's in it? God says, do not steal. They say, our ancestor Yishmael was a thief, and we steal. That's what we do. Um, so they rejected it as well. So that's the story the Midrash tells us. You know, it's unlikely that these nations had an actual revelation, similar to the revelation that our ancestors had at Sinai. Um, perhaps these events happened on more of a spiritual plane. Um, the Midrash says that every nation has a guardian angel that watches over that nation. Um, perhaps God was not talking to the people, but to their guardian angel. Um, or the Medrash may be figurative, as many Midrashim are, 
um, making the point that the other Abrahamic descendants, that God had chosen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the other Abrahamic descendants and nations really didn't deserve the Torah based because of their actions. So regardless, God decided to give the Torah to our people. Clearly, God had already decided that much, much earlier from the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> he had already communicated that before the exodus from Egypt. So the people make their way to Mount Sinai. <clears throat> it takes them, as we said, 50 days um, until the actual giving of the Torah. But on the first day of the third month, when they left Egypt, remember they left Egypt on the 15th day of the first month. On the first day of the third month, about um, six weeks after they left, Israel arrives at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, the Torah interestingly describes when Israel arrives at the foot of Mount Sinai, the Torah describes it in singular form. Instead of saying, he ar they arrived, it says, he arrived. Referring to Israel in singular form in a heat. Um, and so the, our sages point out that the reason why the Torah does that is because on that day, all of Israel was united. One thing we Jews have always struggled with throughout our very long history is we never got along. We always fought. Um, we've always had inner struggles between various Jews and groups of Jews. We've always fought with each other. It's been a big problem. But at that moment, we're told when we stood there to get the Torah, we were all united. And that's because the focus that day was on this historic event of receiving the Torah, which let us forget about our petty issues, petty fights, um, petty problems, uh, we are focused on one and only issue, the Torah. And so the Torah really is about forgetting about ourselves. God gave us a mission and a purpose. And so when we focus on the Torah, we forget about ourselves and the small petty things that we're worried about and remind ourselves that we have a greater mission and purpose. And so the Torah really gives us not just this power of humility to not be self-centered and focus on ourselves, but really the power of unity to bring us together for something greater than ourselves. As long as we're all focused on ourselves, it's hard to come together. When we're focused on something greater than ourselves, on something that unites us all, God's instructions to us as a people, that's what makes us unified. That's what brings us together. If we would just focus on the Torah beyond ourselves, instead of focusing each person on their own needs and their own, own wants and their own heady problems, we would, if we would just focus on the Torah itself, it would bring us all together. So the day after they arrived at, so they, they arrived at, as we said, on the first month of, first day of the Hebrew month of Sivan. The day after they arrived, God called Moses, who went up to the top of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, the mountain itself, the people were at the foot of the mountain. The top of the mountain was covered in a thick cloud, which throughout their period in the desert, the cloud always represented God's presence or the Shekhinah. And so Moses ascended the mountain, went to the top of the mountain. And there God speaks to him. And God said that says that he wants to make a covenant with the people, with the people of Israel. And he promises as follows. If they agree to accept his Torah, his, his teachings and instructions, then they will become a treasured people. They will become a kingdom of priests, Mamlechet Kohanim, and a holy nation. They'll have a special role to fulfill in history. But it comes on condition that they agree to commit to fulfill the commandments that God gives them. So Moses came down the mountain, gathered the people, and shared God's words with them. Do you want this deal? So the people said, whatever God says, we will do. We're prepared to do anything God says. We're in. Now, remember, at this point, they did not know. They knew some of the commandments that God had given them, some early, an early taste, a couple, a handful. But they didn't know most of the commandments. They had no idea what God was going to ask them to do. And yet they agreed to it. The Talmud says that we were an Amapaziza, we were a hurried nation, we rushed into it. We had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. And yet we did it because we trusted God and we wanted to have that relationship with God. 
God valued that, that we were prepared to accept anything that he would give us without even knowing what he would tell us to do. So Moses then goes back up the mountain the next day. This is already the third of the month of Sivan and reports the people's answer that they're in. They want to accept the deal. They want to make the covenant with him. So God tells Moses that I will appear to you, God will appear to Moses and command him in front of all the people. So all the people will get to experience God's revelation to Moses. They'll get to watch God revealing himself to Moses. Until then, the people had seen great miracles. Remember, they had seen 10 plagues in Egypt. They had miraculously left Egypt. Moses had split the sea for them. They had manna falling every single day. They had a rock that spewed forth water, giving them plenty of water. They were living a miraculous life. Yet, they didn't know who was doing it. Moses kept saying God's doing it, but they never met God. Now they're going to get a chance to meet God. Now they're going to see God directly. So, and as a result, God tells Moses, they will believe in you forever and in the commandments that you give them. Once, now they're trusting you that the miracles you're doing are coming from me, says God. But once they see me, once they have a revelation, they will have experienced God themselves. Once they've experienced God themselves, now they, now they recognize that this is all coming from God. They will believe in it forever. So Moses goes back down and reports to the people, hey, this is what's going to happen. God is going to speak to me and you'll all get to see God speaking to me. The people are very disappointed. They say, we were hoping that God will speak to us. We don't just want to watch God speaking to you. We want God to speak to us directly. Fair complaint. So Moses goes back up the next day. This is already the fourth day. Moses goes back up the mountain, says, God, people are unhappy. They don't want to watch you speak to me. They want you to speak to them directly. So God says, no problem. Done. We're going to, I'm going to appear to them. But for me to appear to them, you have to prepare them. To that day was the fourth day of the month of Sivan. You're going to have to prepare them today and tomorrow. And then on the third day, meaning the fourth and the fifth, on this third day, which is going to be the sixth of Sivan, I will then appear to them. There's actually a debate in the Talmud. There's another opinion that it was actually the f- one more day that, that another day of prepare, preparation. How are they going to prepare themselves for these three days? So first they tell them to avoid all sexual activity during this time. Because um, sexual activity renders a person tame, ritually impure. And God did not want them to be tame, ritually impure when they received the Torah. So therefore, they should separate for this time. Everybody is to go to the mikveh, immerse themselves in a pool of water, to become tahor ritually pure. And this is both to be that they should be ritually pure at the giving of the Torah, and also as part of the process of joining God's covenant. Then God tells that Moses further, that Moses to fence off the bottom of the mountain, and warn the people not to go on the mountain until God's presence disappears after the revelation. And the people should prepare themselves knowing that God on that day and the next, the fourth and the fifth day of Sivan, knowing that God will appear to them on the sixth day of Sivan. Then... um, On then on the next day, the fifth day of so Moses came down, reported to the people. The next morning, the fifth day of Sivan, 
um, everybody is going to, um, God commands everyone went to the mikveh. How did they have a mikveh pool of water? So as we mentioned, there was a rock that Moses had hit. And as a result, it would spew forth water and a river of water would flow out of this rock and this rock would travel along with them as they traveled through the desert. So they always had a river near them um, as they traveled through the desert. And so um, this created, the, the using the river, they were able to create pools um, from the water from the river and that gave them mikvahs where they were able to immerse themselves in the mikvah. So all of Israel immersed themselves in the mikvah. And this, is, this immersing themselves in the mikvah was one of three steps in joining God's covenant. Already earlier, before they left Egypt, all the men had circumcised. That was the covenant that God had made earlier with Abraham in order to be part of our people. The Jewish male has to be circumcised. But now in order to join God's covenant, they're going to have to take three steps. The first is they're going to have to go to the mikvah, which they did now. The second is they would have to agree to follow all of God's commandments, which they did already. God, Moses had asked them if they want to make a deal with God. Well, well, are they prepared to commit to following all of his commandments? And they said yes, even though they didn't even know what they were yet. But they had agreed to follow all of God's commandments. And then the third step is they have to offer a sacrifice. So, and today, when somebody um, converts to Judaism, they have to go through those same three steps, which is committing to following all of God's commandments as relevant to them, as applicable to them, going to a mikvah, immersing oneself in a mikvah, and offering a sacrifice. All three steps have to be followed. Um, unfortunately, we're unable to offer sacrifices since the temple is no longer standing. Um, but the rule is that if a person converts to Judaism and becomes a Jew, joining God's covenant, just as our ancestors did at Sinai, if they join God's covenant, as soon as they accept to follow the commandments and go to the mikvah, they're already 100% Jewish, but they still retain the obligation to bring sacrifice, to bring the sacrifice, then they would not be able to eat sacrificial meat or go into the temple until they do so. So anyone who has converted while there is no temple standing, as soon as the temple is rebuilt, will need to bring a sacrifice. So then Moses built an altar as part of the bring sacrifice and offer sacrifice on behalf of all of Israel. And he took some of the blood, he sprinkled it on the altar as we do when we bring sacrifices in the temple. And then the rest of the blood he took and he, and he sprinkled on the people as part of a sign that they were joining God's covenant. Now they had taken the three steps to join God's covenant. They're now officially joined. Now they were ready for the revelation. Any questions, comments? So the morning of the 6th of Sinai. You wanted to ask the question. Where go ahead, Mark. Where, Sandy wanted to ask the question, where did the blood come from originally? Where they, sacrifices. Get the they offered sacrifices from the animals. They brought us sacrifices. They slaughtered them. They burned, They ate some of the meat. They burned some of it on the altar. Um, and they, the, the blood of the sacrifice, some of it was the blood of the animals. Some of it was sprinkled on the altar, as we usually do when we offer sacrifices, when we did when the temple stood. And it was sprinkled on the people as well as a sign of the covenant. So now, on the morning of the 6th of Sivan, the day of the revelation, the day that they had been waiting for, the people awoke. The mountain, we were told, was covered in fire with thick smoke, like the smoke of a furnace all over the mountain. There was lightning, thunder, great sound. And the entire mountain shook. Our sages say that at this point, the people stood at the foot of the mountain. But the Torah interestingly uses the words, the people stood under the mountain. And our sages say at this point, God raised the entire mountain over their heads. And God told them, presumably through Moses, 
accept my Torah, accept my join my covenant, or I will drop the mountain and bury you here. Which raises the question, why did God do that? They already a couple days earlier had willingly agreed to follow all of God's commandments before they even knew what they were. They had already willingly accepted God's commandments. They had taken the steps already to join God's covenant. And yet after they had done so, now God threatens them. Join the covenant or I drop the mountain and bury you here. And our sages explain that the reason is God wanted to impress on them that the Torah is not a choice. While initially God may have given them a choice if they want to join the covenant, once you've joined the covenant, you're stuck. There's no way out. Now you have to follow what God said. You cannot walk away from it. Once we're part of God's covenant, and those who are born into it, the descendants of those that were there at Sinai, are part of God's covenant, you cannot walk away from it. You cannot reject it. You've made this deal with God or your ancestors have. You're part of it. You cannot, even though we may have agreed initially, but we don't have the choice to reject it. Now that may sound unfair. But if you think about it, it's really very, very powerful and empowering. There are things that we do based on choice. We choose to do so. We could choose not to do so. And that there are some things that run deeper than choice. They're there whether you like it or not. They're beyond you. Think of a relationship. We could build relationships with our friends. We choose who we want to marry. That's based on choice. But because it's based on choice, you can walk away at any time. You can walk away from your friends. You can walk away from your marriage. You know, it's not going well. You don't like it anymore. Walk away. You're not tied into it. It's only dependent on our choice. As long as you like it, go for it. Don't like it anymore, walk away. But then there are relationships that you can never get away from. Family, even when you walk away from you're still family. They're always there. They'll always be your family. You cannot walk away from them. It's something that's deeper than your choices. It's not something that you can choose. It's beyond you. And so our relationship with God, our covenant with God, may have started as a choice. God initially offered it to us. But ultimately, it's beyond us. And once we've accepted it, it's beyond us. It's not our choice to be part of God's covenant. Now it's something more powerful than us that we are part of. So the people stood at the foot of the mountain. And the mountain, as we said, was covered in fire, this thick, thick smoke. There was thunder, lightning. The entire mountain was shaking. And at this point, Moses moved closer to the mountain. The people stood at a distance as God had commanded. And then they heard God speak. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are just briefly. The first is, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord your God, who took you out of Egypt, which our sages say is a commandment. Believe in me. It's the foundation of Judaism. If you don't believe in God, there's no Judaism. Second, do not worship idols. Third, do not use God's name in vain which is a prohibition against swearing falsely with God's name. Four, keep Shabbos. Remember it, don't work on Shabbos. Five, honor your parents. Six, do not murder. Seven, do not commit adultery. Eight, do not steal. Nine, don't testify falsely. And ten, do not desire that which your friend has. So those are the Ten Commandments that God said. Now, God had many, many more commandments than ten. 
People often make this mistake because the Christians whom we live amongst are very familiar with the Ten Commandments. But God had a plan for a lot more commandments than ten. We know that there are 613 commandments. But God only got as far as ten. Then they approached Moses. When God got to ten, they, the people approached Moses saying, It is so powerful. So awe-inspiring, so overwhelming, we cannot handle it. Please, Moses, you go get the rest of the commandments from God for us and teach it to us. We've had enough. So at first, Moses was very disappointed. Here he had brought the people to Sinai to experience God's revelation, and they can't handle it. They don't want any more. But God reassures Moses. Says, don't worry, Moses. Mission accomplished. The goal was that the people should now fear God forever. Be aware of God and never forget. Be aware of our covenant with God. That goal has now been achieved. If they've been overwhelmed by the revelation, this is a revelation that they will never, ever forget. So Moses then went up the mountain the next day, where he spent 40 days and 40 nights, and God taught him the rest of the commandments. He then came down, it took a little time because they messed up with the golden calf, but he came down and eventually he taught these commandments to the people. Now, interestingly, our sages note that if you look at the commandments carefully, you'll see that the first two commandments are said in first person. God says, Anochi Hashem Elokech, I am the Lord your God, who took you out of Egypt. The second commandment reads, Lo Elohim You should not have other gods before me. God speaking of himself in first person. But then in the third commandment and onward, it speaks of God in third person. Do not Say God's name in vain. And the other commandments as well refer to God in third person, as indeed the entire Torah does. Refers to God in third person. And so our sages say that shows that only the first two commandments did we hear directly from God. Because only those he says in first person. If he said the others, he would have said them also in first person. We really only heard the first two from God. And this is actually alluded to in the word Torah. We say, Torah tzival lanu Moshe. Moshe commanded us the Torah. Every word in Hebrew has a number of value based on the value of its letters. Every Hebrew letter has a set number of value. We call it gematria. About a year ago, we did a class on gematria. So the number value of the word Torah is 611. Moses commanded us the Torah, gave us 611 commandments, because the first two commandments we heard directly from God. So if we only heard the first two commandments from God, why then does the Torah say 10? So the Talmud says that first God said all Ten commandments in one go. And then God began to say them one by one, but only managed to get through the first two. So we heard all ten from God quickly. And then we only heard the first two enumerated separately. And then we had enough. And we called and we said, stop there. And so therefore the rest of the commandments were then said in third person by Moses. Any questions or comments? Yes. If the people, uh, the Jewish people were so inspired and so overwhelmed that they couldn't hear God, they said, Moses, you take it from here. Why would they build a golden calf? That's an excellent question. <laughs> that is an excellent question. Why would they build a golden calf? Um, I don't have a good answer to that question. Definitely not a short Good answer to that question. Um, but let's say this, 
that what we'd like to imagine if God only spoke to me, if I only had this great revelation, was inspired, I would suddenly do everything right. Um, history shows otherwise, that people retain their evil inclination or their inclination to do bad uh, or to do the wrong thing, even when God speaks to them and even when they get great revelations. So it doesn't seem to cancel out our desire to do the wrong thing. Susan? I have three questions, actually. Um, you know, the Torah in, it isn't only the commandments, the 600 and how many? Okay. 613. Okay, right. Um, but if there's a lot of other things in it, like stories. So did um, God tell Moses all those stories as well? Yeah. Besides, the yeah. There's stories, there's inspirational information. There's mystical information. There's a lot of other information in the Torah besides the commandments. We believe all of it was taught to Moses at Mount Sinai. He has a good memory, huh? <laughs> and um, also, too, when God spoke to the people, um, how did they hear him? Did he have an actual voice or was it a... That's an excellent question. I'm going to get that in a second. What's your third question? Okay, the third question is uh, this holiday of Shavuot is... Um, is a very, very, very important holiday, or what, what do you want to, I guess you call it a holiday. It's a holiday, sure. Yeah, okay. So why isn't it as, seem as important as like Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah? Those two holidays seem to be the crowning holidays in Judaism, but why not Shavuot? It's, hmm? It is. But we don't observe it as such. I mean, not everybody goes to temple like they do on Yom Kippur and, you know, and follow the commandments of Yom Kippur. Most people, I don't think, follow the commandments of, I mean, even not, not the, I mean, the they lesson. Let's just say they should. Um, I don't see one holiday more important than the other. Um, maybe people like to observe Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur because of Jewish guilt. Um, you know, they're the holidays for guilt. Um, but I, I don't. I, there's no there's no reason why people observe other holidays more than Shavuot. I don't even it's definitely mean, a very I, major important holiday in Judaism, uh, and it absolutely should be observed by everyone. Yeah, I just don't ever remember learning about it when I was a kid going to Hebrew school or whatever. I don't remember my daughters while in their Jewish education ever said, let's go to temple on this holiday. I, it just didn't seem to be a very important holiday to most Jews. I know what I it is. I don't know why. I, I really don't know why. It definitely should be. Yeah. Uh, maybe because it's shorter. Maybe because it doesn't have the guilt a Seder. Um, Sukkot also doesn't get much of a mention either. Um, I don't know a reason. I don't know why. It should be. Because it has nothing to do with food. <laughs> Oh, we do eat dairy. We we absolutely has to do with food. Oh. Uh, we have great dairy. I mean, we do dairy meals, and um, it's always been you know. Mm -hmm. There's the customs and the and the commandments and the hot festival itself, but then there's also the um, what you call culture that developed over the years. So you know, Jews historically didn't really cook dairy very much because especially in the old country, they didn't have two kitchens. People didn't have the money for two kitchens. So they really only cooked meat. And they had, um, you know, they would have maybe milk in the mornings, but that was it. They didn't cook dairy ever. So Shavuot was like there once a year that they had a whole dairy meal. And all the dairy foods that Jews always ate, cheesecakes and blintzes, which is a very Jewish food, um, you know, and um, cheese latkes, cheese pancakes, and all the other Jewish dairy foods are Shavuot foods. That's, that's when we ate them. They didn't cook dairy any other time. So it's very much a food holiday. Yeah. Okay. So what exactly did the people experience at Mount Sinai? It's hard to say. Because while they could describe things that we can relate to today, thunder, lightning, fire, cloud, thick smoke, while they could describe the shaking of the mountain, those are things that we can all understand what they were. 
the actual revelation is clearly hard to describe to somebody who's never actually experienced it. So the Torah describes it as God speaking and people hearing the words of God. Interestingly, later, when the Torah actually, when Moses describes the event in Deuteronomy, sorry, when the Torah, when the events described in the Torah, in the Torah in, in Exodus, the Torah says people saw the sounds, which is an unusual way of speaking. Our sages say that means that they were able to see that which is heard and hear that which is seen. In other words, the regular senses as we know them today, at the moment of the revelation, acted a little differently. Right? Today we hear that which we hear, we see that which we see. Then their senses were a little bit different. Maimonides puts it, God doesn't speak with, and he deals with this in great detail, God doesn't speak with um, sound as we know it, generating sound waves as we know it. Rather, God speaks and people hear, prophets hear, or during this revelation, we're able to experience God, hear the words of God. But it wouldn't have been through sound waves. It would have been through a sensory power that we don't have today, the ability to sense God's words. It's a sensory power most of us don't have. So it's something that we cannot actually describe exactly how they heard God or exactly what they heard. So we don't know exactly what the sensory experience was like, the things that we can describe, the fire, the and that's why God added all those things in, although that wasn't the revelation itself, so that we can describe those details later. The fire, the, the smoke, the shaking, the noise, those are things we can describe. In the actual revelation of God is a sensory experience that when not experiencing it, or for those who never experienced it, cannot describe it, cannot picture it, because we don't have that sensory experience. Yet we know that God did speak to the people, did reveal himself to the people, and that is the basis of Judaism. That stands at the very foundation of Judaism. The Torah later in Deuteronomy, when Moses describes it, he describes the voice of God as being kol gadol veloyasa, a great voice that did not stop. What does it mean that it did not stop? There's various explanations as to what that means, but it, one of the explanations is it reverberates through history. The voice of God, that voice of revelation, still stays with us today. We still live by that revelation. As Moses says later in the Torah, your own eyes have seen God. You were shown God yourselves to know God. The words of Maimonides, it was our eyes and our ears, again, using senses that we relate to today, um, that experienced this revelation at Sinai. And Jewish thinkers have pointed out, <coughs> excuse me, Jewish thinkers have pointed out that Judaism, this is going back to Rav Sajid Gaon, the Kuzari, um, Maimonides, and many others, that the experience that Israel had at Sinai, at Sinai is the only such experience ever claimed by any people ever. Moses really says this already in the Torah. Is there any other nation that ever had such an experience? No nation has ever claimed such an experience. In fact, every single religious belief starts with the claims of a handful of people. A handful of people claim to have had a revelation. Or one person had a revelation. And people believe that individual, they are somehow a prophet and communicate with the divine. Maybe that individual then showed a miracle to a handful of disciples. And then people believe them. Maybe they lied. How do you know? How do you know what they're telling is true? Our story, though, is different. 
Our story has an entire people. We're given a number of 600,000 men above the age of 20. Using that number extrapolating, we're talking about probably at least one and a half million people. A very, very, very large group. And it's not just a number thrown out there because the Torah then lists each tribe exactly how many members there were in each tribe and adds them up. So it was a pretty calculated number. It's a very exact number. So one and a half million people experienced the exodus from Egypt, experienced the crossing of the sea, but those were just miracles performed by Moses claiming that it was God doing. But then all those people stood at Sinai and heard God speak to our entire people. This is what we call our national, our nation's collective memory. It's not the memory of a handful of people. This is collective memory. The way we know truths, thing to be, things to be true, is not by us empirically proving each and everything. It's impossible for one individual to prove very much in their lifetime. We're only one person. But it's based on what we call collective information. In other words, everybody knows who the president of the United States is. You watch them on TV, but maybe they're all lying to you. Right? How do you know? Right? Everybody knows. It's collective information. Everybody knows who the first president was. We have records, but maybe they're forged. It's collective information. We know because that's our history. As a group, we know it to be true. And most of what we rely on for information, for accurate information, is what we call collective information. But for that collective information to be really considered accurate, it must have always been collective. In other words, if it starts with one person sharing a small amount of information, and then that information spreads, and now everyone knows it to be true, but it started with one person, then maybe it's not true. Maybe that person made it up. But if it was always collective information, everyone always knew it to be true, then that's the definition of truth. We always knew it to be so. The Judaism began as a collective experience of all the people. All the people. And this is something that we always knew to be true as our people. Every record we have ever of Jewish history has Jews believing in the Torah and Mount and the collective revelation. Is it theoretically possible that one person one day made up that all of Israel, that there was this collective information and gradually spread it to their disciples who spread it to other people till everyone began to believe this collective story? Highly unlikely. How do we know that? Because nobody else ever tried it. If the claim of a revelation to a very, very large group is more believable and definitely is than the claim of a revelation to an individual, then others would have made that same claim. Yet nobody ever did. Because it's hard to tell people that something is true, that they know to be true, say this is true. You could tell them and tell them and tell them, but ultimately you won't, they won't believe it. You won't be able to tell, you could tell someone, I experienced something and get them to believe you if they trust you. But you can't tell them you experienced something and get them to believe you. That's a lot of harder. So this belief in this experience at Sinai, this revelation at Sinai, though it was a one-time revelation reverberates till today. It continues today. Today, we, the people, are still aware of that revelation at Sinai. Not only are our people still today aware of that revelation of Sinai, in fact, almost everyone on earth is aware today of that revelation on Sinai, at Sinai. We've managed to spread it to the whole world, but it's our information as a nation. We're still the same people that were here 3,000 years ago. And it's our ancestors that experienced that. And it's been part of our collective experience ever since. 
Bart. Yeah, so uh, given that, uh, why, why have these other religions spread so much faster than Judaism then? If, uh, given with the facts that you, your points, why has Judaism not spread as fast as the other religions? That's an excellent question. And I'll give you two answers. Why did Judaism not spread as quickly as the other religions? Firstly, we're not trying to spread. We're an exclusive covenant between us and God. People want they could join, but we're, we don't advocate other people to join. We're not spreading Judaism in that sense. We're spreading monotheism and that we're very successful in, but we're not making other people Jewish. We don't proselytize. That's firstly. Secondly, even when there were groups who tried to proselytize their religion or their beliefs of whatever they were to others, but they included the commandments of Judaism, for example, the early Christians who did believe in proselytizing, which Jews never, ever did. Um, and those early Christians who tried to sell it to others discovered very quickly that Judaism is also very burdensome, very tedious. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ways you got to change your life to be Jewish. People didn't like it. So the early Christians just dropped most of that stuff because it was too hard to sell. But we Jews never tried selling. Um, Rabbi, I'm sorry, but I have to leave. Okay. So thank you. That was a good lesson. Thank you very much. So, <laughs> so the power of the Torah, the revelation that we have at Sinai that we celebrate on Shavuot, that power of that revelation still stands today. It was the opening moment we called earlier the foundation of Judaism. That was the opening moment of the covenant we made with God, which we still are part of today. And we still follow through that covenant today as part of that revelation at some. But we need the process of keeping that revelation alive. We need as a nation to constantly remember that event, to never ever forget it, as we mentioned earlier, the Torah commands us. Teach the next generation. And we have many ways of doing that, teaching Torah in general, we have the Seder where we tell the story of the Exodus to our descendants. But then we also have an event every single year where we all celebrate Shavuot to remember that revelation at Sinai, to remember the giving of the Torah, to recount how we made a covenant with God. And we've therefore developed this custom, not command, it's not a commandment to the Torah, but it's a custom that we've developed, that we read the Ten Commandments and read about the story of the revelation at Sinai on the first day of Shavuot, to relive that commitment to God, to relive that covenant with God. And so tomorrow morning, we will be Shavuot, and we will be reading the Torah here. Once again, I encourage everybody to join us um, to hear the story of the revelation being read once again. Um, and it's an opportunity for us to relive that commitment to that event at Sinai, which we still, we have kept alive for over 3,000 years. And we need to continue keeping alive for ourselves and our future, our children and our future descendants.